This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer and producer Dan Needham. Dan is recognized in Nashville as one of the top session and live drummers. Dan has performed and or recorded with people like Michael McDonald, Amy Grant, Peter Cetera, Shaka Khan, Nathan East, Phil Keggy, Gino Vanelli, Al Green, Billy Preston, Kenny Loggins, Christopher Cross, Carol King, as well as many other amazing artists. To find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done on Working Drummer Podcast, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, as well as iTunes, where you can rate and review this podcast. This helps us grow. This helps us reach new listeners and put on a better podcast for you. So find us on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. We're also on Stitcher and Spotify. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I have been doing here for over six years, you can find us on patreon.com slash working drummer for as little as a dollar per month. You have access to the educational material we provide on our Patreon page provided by former guests. If Patreon isn't your thing, we have a PayPal button on our website, workingdrummer.net. You can go there and donate. We appreciate all the support over the years that we've gotten from you, our listeners, and we are excited about what 2021 is bringing to the table, and we hope you are too. So a few years ago, I stumbled upon some videos that Dan did for Vic Firth. If you search on YouTube for Dan Needham, Vic Firth, you'll find these. They were made around 2013, but they're super relevant still today. He talks about playing to the grid, cymbal height, uh, mic placement, uh, a tour of his studio. It's super great. Uh, so if you go check those out and his personality comes through in these videos just just really just bright and into music and production and creation and uh, real energetic and I feel like he comes across that way as well in our conversation and uh, I'm just I'm so uh, honored to have Dan on the podcast I've known of him for for many years and uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Needham I just kind of came into the recording scene in the mid 90s when Pro Tools is a new and like horrible medium to record on because <laughs> it was, you know, you would take, do a take and you'd have to wait for like 20, 30 to an hour for just the render so you could listen back to what you did kind of thing. Just one take? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was, like, let's not even start talking about editing or anything like that. It, it was just cumbersome and it didn't sound great. It was still at that point, the conversion thing wasn't happening like it is now. My gosh, now you can buy a, like a Behringer, you know, 16 input audio interface and the thing sounds amazing and it's like under a hundred bucks or something. You know, it's around the hundred dollar mark. It's pretty impressive what, how, how things have come along. A funny story, uh, years ago, one of the first tours I ever did was uh, with Amy Grant. 
And uh, the bass player in that was a guy named Tommy Sims, who, if, I don't know if you know Tommy, but a crazy genius. He's amazing. He plays everything well. Um, great writer, but blah, blah, blah. But he used to do this thing every night <laughs> where he would have his guitar tech tune the low string on his bass a different note and not tell him. Oh so when he, he'd walk out on stage... That first downbeat when we came in together was never right. <laughs> but so and he immediately found out what, and then he would compensate the rest of the night. It made him think differently and play differently to compensate for whatever note that was, you know? Oh my gosh, that's insane. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. I, I, it, that just, I don't know how that, I mean, to have that confidence. To be like, hey, just just mess with me today. Let's see if we can do this. A- Amy won't mind. You know. The, oh well, actually, Amy is awesome about stuff like that. She loves uh, being in the moment and the organicness of that kind of stuff. So, oh yeah, she wouldn't. And this was one stuff. of the the first tours you did. Uh, I guess of this literally, level. Yeah, literally the first tour yeah, I ever did. Um, it was um. I just got married. It was like a, a week after I got back from my honeymoon. We jumped off into this. It was called the Behind the Eyes tour, and I think it was '98. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was my first foray into touring, and it was a fantastic experience, you know. But I kind of, you know, I was never into traveling, and so it was at the kind of that point where, I thought, well, this is awesome, but I think I kind of would rather stay home. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know, fortunately, I was able to do that for quite a while, and. Um, but then again, you know, you spend too much time just doing studio work. You kind of neglect the whole other side. There's the whole world of live playing is um, such a great counterbalance to studio work, you know. And I think it's good to have a good dose of both of those going on all the time. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, my live playing makes me play better in the studio or makes me think differently in the studio. And my, my studio playing makes me think differently about how I'm perceived live, you know? So, um, yeah, that's really interesting. So I, of course I have my notes and I put them in order, which I think this will be a nice order. But again, Dan, you sabotaged me, man. You're jumping around. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Let's go back. Go start, start however you want. (laughs) No, but this is great because I think a lot of us are experiencing this as things are starting to open back up. And and as many of our listeners know, um, I'm based in Nashville and we have a lot of listeners in Nashville. And it's one of the few cities that's opening back up and there's more people playing live now. Uh, Not as much for our peers around the world or in places like New York or Los Angeles as much, uh, for example, uh, not to neglect anyone else or their live Mm -hmm. scene. Uh, So what's happened for me, and I'm, I'm curious to know, kind of get your perspective on that based on what you're saying is a lot of us have been growing our home studios, spending more time recording, and now we're playing live. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how I'm hearing myself and how I'm interacting with musicians. There's that aspect of it, but I'm, I'm, I don't know how this experience, and it makes me think about those that have a lot of studio experience I had a chance to hang out with Steve Brewster, and he talked mm-hmm. about not having played live for almost three years, and then uh, going out working with Peter Cetera, and he said, it was fine, it was great musically, and endurance-wise, I you know, had to work on a few things, but it just was a game changer. It was a, it was a head, it just messed with his, with his head a little bit, and I'm, so I'm curious to know, you're talking about how one there's a symbiotic relationship between live and studio. Could you, 
uh, unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Steve took that gig over for me when I left Peter to go play with Michael McDonald. Okay. And so uh, we had conversations about, you know, what was to be expected and what um, kind of how, how Peter functions and his disposition and whatnot like that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I totally, I totally get that. If you haven't been doing the live thing, sitting down and doing an hour and a half show full energy, uh, that's a lot different than sitting down and doing just kind of, you know, uh, five minute shots of playing and then, all right, let's stop. Like as, as it is in the studio, you know, right. In in the studio, the, the big thing about what I, it's really fun is that, uh, I guess this is why I think about it. <laughs> Maybe not every every studio musician thinks this way, but I'm like, oh, there's always a safety net. You know, I, I can I can go for things more often. I'll try different things just because I know I can always go back and change it, or I I'll tr- I'll experiment more. In a live situation, is like uh, I don't know how much experimentation you need to be doing, <laughs> particularly when you're working on a gig where an established artist has a set of songs that sure. he kind of wants them a certain way. Sure. If you're back there going, you know, <laughs> trying, you know, seven over five, <laughs> like a, a Chicago song, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't fare well, generally. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in the studio, I, I love the fact that you can um, uh, try different things and experiment and go back and, oh, well, well, how would this snare sound on this? How would this sound? Like? There's, there's not generally as much of a... Uh, an issue with that but live the the wonderful thing about live is that you have to be in that moment you have to remain super focused Mm -hmm. and thinking ahead about all right what the next choice going into this section how i'm gonna i can't overdo it i can't you know watch my watch your tempo watch what all right what is the bass player doing let me lock into what he's doing what's the guitar player what's the vocalist and you're always i'm you know with michael mcdonald i'm always uh, adjusting what I'm doing to his performance. Hmm. So I got him up really loud in my, my ears. And if he's moving back, I'll move back. If he's feeling something differently, I'll feel it differently with him, you know? Um, so there's a lot more of that going on uh, in the studio. It, it's uh, of course you're listening to everybody, but yeah. uh, it's the pressure to me is not as, not as great because uh, there's always a beautiful safety net called. Undo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And if you're at home by yourself, uh, undo, no, start, no, undo, start. No. Right. Oh, man. Totally. How much that's, am I getting paid to do this one song that's taken me two hours? Wait, wait, wait. So, exactly. I find, yeah. that, I find that fascinating because I've, I'm, I've almost had the opposite experience. Now, there are established artist live gigs, and I totally get that. You know, they're really relying on a, uh, a, a just a, a strong foundation, a consistency for them to perform on uh there's the there's the there's the less glamorous gigs that that i'll do uh if if it's a band doing covers or if it's you know in a club or something like that that's kind of most of the live gigs that i do so for me like i can experiment or a little bit and then and then in the studio if it's not on my own if it's someone else's studio especially in a place like Nashville where it's been ingrained in you that time is money and you move fast. And I'm thinking, Mm. you know, how do some of these session players that I've been listening to for years, I know how they do it. They listen maybe to half the demo uh, and then they go in and run it down, maybe make a change, maybe do it twice, three times at the most. At least Mm -hmm. that's the... The mythology, 
if yeah. you will. You know, that 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 mentality of just going back when when I first started getting into sessions, uh I did not go in I would not start in the country music thing. Mm-hmm. And um when I finally ended up doing like my first country demo session, I'm I was kind of like taken aback, like, whoa. Uh so we're not gonna Go back and all right. I guess we're moving along. <laughs> next song. Uh, what you're gonna leave that? All right. What's the next song? <laughs> yeah. I was kind of blown away with the um, and you know most of those guys in, in who are doing those you know those types of sessions are so unbelievably proficient at what they're doing. Um, but uh, I, I kind of started in the session scene with um. And it all go, I think all goes to budgets and, you know, and things have changed a lot with budgets. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, when you have a, you know, a half a million dollar budget on an album that, that, you know, someone brings you in for, there's time to, you know, I remember times where we would go in and I would spend just the whole day getting drum tones, the right drum tones for the track. And yeah. we would spend, all right, let's try a dozen different snares, different, different mic placements, different microphones, you know, um, and and then we would work on or we'd spend hours and hours just working out the parts and making sure that they, you know, spending that much time and effort into. And then then you go from that world to uh, which is the more typical Nashville world is where, you know, you've got a three hour session and you've got to get so much done in it. Um, it's a boy. It's a different muscle. Honestly, it's a mm. different muscle. So most of the times I try to fall somewhere in between because honestly, as a producer, when I got my producer hat on, I love the musicians who come into the session that I've hired that are not one and done. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, it may be one and done. They may be amazing. It may be an amazing take. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a, afraid to take the first take, but um, I love the guy's head. I'll go. You know what? Let me. Can I try that bridge again? Or what? What do you think if we tried this for this section? Yes, absolutely. You know, it shows that you're invested, really, yeah, honestly, invested yeah. in what you're doing. And I find uh, artists love that too. That wait a second, these guys come in who plan stuff all the time, and but they're taking extra time to make sure that that bridge was right. The, wow. Okay. Yeah, I dig that. That's great. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't. I'm not saying fabricate interest in the what you're doing. I, this comes from a very, oh wow, yes. What if we tried? You know, I'm not saying being you know uh, a put on, but from an honest from an honest place, I, I generally try to because I, I want to walk away. This is I'm on there. I'm, I'm, it's representing what I do. I want it to be the best it possibly can, you know, no matter what the thing is. It could be a little demo or it could be a, you know, a national <laughs> released record of whatever. It doesn't matter. To me, I will spend the, like, you know, you were just talking about a second ago how, man, does it merit, the budget does merit me spending two and a half hours in my studio? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right. I know I, I think about that often because, you know, there'll be times where I'm, I should have spent, an hour and a half on this track, but here I am four hours in and I'm on my fifth percussion overdub and I'm trying to make it sound, you know, but that's, I think people appreciate that. Right. You know? Right. Right. I think it's, I think it's a good thing. And some songs take that amount of time and other songs go by really quick. And I think it all sure. just kind of comes out for in, sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and one of the takeaways for me and hearing you describe kind of the different situations and, and, and kind of showing how to adapt to, well, you know, this is kind of a demo thing. It's a typical, you know, Nashville, we're not going to spend a lot of time getting artsy fartsy with it. Um, here is an indie person and they've hired you because of, 
your musicality, whatever. And so, you know, so from my perspective, if I'm in a session, I I wouldn't think, well, I've got to be quick because uh, that's how I know things are done. But if and, and then let things go. I shouldn't do that. There's, there's, if I feel like something needs to happen in a bridge or mm-hmm. if uh, the, the feel in the verse, uh, verse two wasn't what it should be, um, to speak of, to speak up isn't uh, an admission of failure. It's, it's, it's like, hey, let's, let's fit. I've got to, I got to do a fix that's going to make this track better. You know, take the time right. because I care about this, your project. Absolutely. You know, and you kind of have to read the room, too, because I mean, right, right. There's situations. But I remember a time where when I first kind of got into the thing, I mean, it was about that efficiency, one and done, kind of like do the chart down right and bam, move on to the next song. And uh, there was a guy who took a lot of pride in being able to do that, you know, and I was always a little confounded with that. But you know, you just kind of go along and you learn. But but there are situations um, I there's one particular uh, session I remember just last year where it was last year I don't know COVID I don't remember anything. Oh my uh, I think it was it was for a Disney. Uh, they were doing some Disney music for one of their theme parks, you know. And in those sessions, like they're heavily charted, so they give you these seven, ten page charts, and you got three hours, and they're going to cut like you know maybe eight songs. Oh my gosh. something like that. And these are not easy. <laughs> easy reads man you got tempo changes you got time changes and transitions because you think about the music background music at these parks you're walking around they're you know seemingly um nothing but if you really listen there's like a lot going on there and some yeah. of the guys who are producing this and writing them are brilliant arrangers but but those in those cases it's like yeah you know one and done is pretty good if you can knock down that chart just the way they wrote it the first time that's like wow and there's not they don't give you a heck of a lot of room for, oh, let's try a different Tom setup. Let's try. No, it's like, let's knock down the way they wrote it. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, those, in those situations, yeah, uh, you know, pulling the creative hat out uh, is not appreciated. <laughs> right. But like you said, like an indie project or whatever the project where, the, where an artist is involved and um, you're showing interest in making whatever they're putting out uh more creative and just giving your all to it i think it's it's a very good idea but of course like i said read the room you know right well what if the creative hat you put on has mouse ears and you're at that session (laughs) you know i tried that and uh, i got removed from the session i got immediately removed from the session i I can't i got canceled actually i'm I'm sorry that's good that's good very very timely dan very good very good so hip man um so one uh, and i think it was an article i read uh an interview you were in um you talked about playing what a producer might want to hear as opposed to what what a drummer would want to hear and and i think mm. that um just reading that most of us would be like oh yeah of course you know because we're always hearing about you know overplaying or mm-hmm. you know playing sure. something that uh, you see a lot on instagram and things like that that drummers do and uh but i i have a feeling there's more to it than that especially uh, as a producer yourself uh could you give an example of that <clears throat> it doesn't take long in this business, as you know. Uh, it only takes a couple times <laughs> to <laughs> play the wrong thing and yeah. realize, wait a second, you know, maybe uh, 
Well, of course, I want to. I don't want to diss instinct, and because a lot of times we get hired because of our instinct. Okay. And once again, every producer is different. There's some producers who really have nothing to offer you in terms of what you should do. You know, and there's other producers who know down to the kick pattern, the hi hat pattern. What kind of? I mean, they've got it down. Yeah. Um, so, once again, reading the room and being uh, at least uh, honoring uh, the, the, those people who want to be more involved with whatever year uh, the arrangement of the drum part is. But um, when I when I I don't remember when I said that, but that sounds like me. Uh, <laughs> but the whole idea of um, kind of setting aside your agenda and going it's like all right this producer and this artist i try to get in and it's like all right what do you what, what were you thinking behind what's your motivation behind the song what's what what were you listening what influenced this what is there something that you were trying to mimic sonically like or something yeah like in generally almost 95 percent of the time people go absolutely i was listening to john Mayer vultures and mm-hmm. I, I i want that kind of a oh but they didn't say that initially so you kind of have to dig a little bit sometimes to there's always some sort of a um usually an exterior uh kind of inspiration that has uh that they have in mind that sometimes you have to dig for um well some people are embarrassed to admit it well i was listening to you know uh, whatever and it would be embarrassing for them and uh and referencing that i'm like no absolutely we need to know that that's what you're, because you i could be going down a completely different road i'll give you a great example this week <laughs> I, this is i i have played on probably just out of my studio in the last 10 years maybe i don't know thousands of songs through here wow through people sending me on the internet yeah. you know and this is the first time i completely failed this producer in there i think i don't even know what, i think they're in like india or something like that and um they we had a discussion about the song and um and so i uh kind of read the kind of read between it was all through email so i'm like i'm kind of understanding what they want and they had kind of demoed up some drums that they had programmed so man i i really wanted this to be awesome and i spent a lot of time honing this thing in and getting the sounds right and i'm like all right they're gonna love this you know so i sent it to him and the response back was i am so confused this is nothing what i want oh my this is completely gosh. the wrong thing there's no groove there's no nothing out like i'm like whoa oh my god <laughs> like gosh. how could i have been so far off on this you know i just, you know generally i'm pretty good at this i haven't yeah. had <laughs> and i was like wow that you know as a person who wants to please people all the time, like that really hurt. So, you know, uh, do you think there was a cultural breakdown language barrier? Man, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know this person. Uh And that's one of the difficulties when doing internet tracks. Right. (laughs) Is that I can't, you don't see a face. You don't hear any express. You don't hear them talking and whatever. Um, when I'm with a producer in a studio, it's like, there's so much, uh, so much mileage that can be take easily covered just in a quick conversation about what they like, what they don't like. Um, the, and, this, and sometimes it's just impossible. Generally, it's never an issue. But this particular time, like, I failed. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Wow. We've been talking to the guys at Air Gigs, and uh, they were a sponsor. And we did like a, uh, I think it was a seven or eight part segment where we just kind of dissected how to be just more successful on that platform. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we discussed was as you work with people around the world, sometimes there's this cultural exchange uh, that can 
be confusing when trying to, uh, you know, I mean, you're speaking about art, you're speaking about someone's project, mm-hmm. and even within a common language and a common culture, it could be a challenge, you know? Yeah. And so there's this new dynamic that people are, are dealing with. Gosh, even um, Doug Belot from New Orleans oh, yeah. talks yeah. about you know, the difference in doing sessions in New Orleans compared to Nashville and how that is culturally, uh, you know, diametrically opposed <laughs> to the time frame Absolutely. and the way people Absolutely. interact. Yeah, know? Doug's awesome. He's really got that dialed in. That's yeah, great. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, interestingly, though, I do have a lot of international clients and I, I t- most of them... I, I can think this is honestly the only time I've ever had an issue with this. Most of them mm-hmm. really describe well what they want and whether it's South America, whether it's Denmark, whether it's Africa, whether it's uh, Japan. I'm trying to think of the countries I've done stuff for. It's been so long. Uh, generally, people are pretty good at describing. Um, I used to work with a producer in South Africa and there was like some music that they wanted like traditional Afrikaner type drum parts. And so Dan went to school and I (laughs) pulled the internet out and I studied that stuff before I tracked it to kind of get, all right, these are the tones they're expecting. This is the vibe. This is, you know, the lilt, you know, when somebody, you have to do your best. And especially if you're trying to emulate uh, really uh, authentic stuff from regional, like Cuban music to me is like, I can play Cuban rhythms, but I can I can't even come close to the feel in terms of if you were raised in it, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that that extra sauce that, that that the people who really know play with, you know. Uh, so but the interesting thing also is that if they're calling you uh, an American to play on something that they're producing overseas, it's generally because they want something that you, they want to bring that element to their music. You know, right, right, right. At least that's the truth I've I've found, particularly in South America. They're like, I do a lot in the CCM industry, and they're they're looking for, they're trying to emulate what's going on over here. So they they'll get the players on their stuff that have played on the stuff that they listen to that they love. So, um, so it's not like it's not like you're trying to reinvent the wheel or something. But. Sure, sure. There, the and and I think that goes back to really understanding musical styles and history. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but alone in the studio. So when people are referencing artists or referencing a style, uh, you know, you can at least wrap your head around what you need to do to get there for the client. Absolutely. I mean, that's like one of our biggest jobs, I think, is to be able to... And that's another thing we we talk about what you like and the differences. It's like with session playing, the fun part I always found about it is that you can you get to be a chameleon, and you get it's like mm-hmm. it's like you get to you're an actor, and you get to dress up and play uh, different different parts. You know, whether it's reggae, and not that I'm some authentic reggae player, but I, I listen to it, and I've tried to. I mean, so you try to create a kit or the tones that get as po- close possibly to real authentic what they're going for or whether it's like rock or what, whatever, whatever the genre is. It's like you try to be a chameleon. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I find really, really intriguing and fun about session playing, you know, and, um, and probably is, is that aspect. And probably at the end of the day, you're like, well, that was fun. Like, man, I wouldn't, oh my have, gosh. you know, absolutely. I'm going to be listening to this record from now on. Uh, you know, <laughs> There was a, I was working on a project uh, for a guy named Israel Houghton years ago. Um, and, uh, we, uh, there was a song, it was kind of a reggae song. And so, man, before we did that, 
we uh, pulled out a ton of like Bob Marley records and for about an hour or two hours we just sat and marinated in it mm-hmm. and then I went out and I was alright how do I so I took a timbali made that my snare drum I took like a a little 10 inch or a little eight inch Tom. And then I put like a, an alternate snare drum off to the right and just made it. So I would not approach it like a normal drum kit. And I got, this is one of my favorite tracks I've ever played on. I was like, at, at the end of the day, you're like, that was fun. It was creative. And I, I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. That's cool. It, it is really interesting. Um, you were talking about like when they, call an American, you know, to do something, you know, from different places around the country. I remember I was working on a cruise ship and there was this band and they were uh, in the, in the lounge, uh, really cool. We'd hang out there and listen to them. They were a jazz band, but they were all Colombian. And when they would play swing tunes, it was, they were great, but as I'm listening to the drummer, it just didn't have that swing that I was used to. It didn't have right. the, the lilt that I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they would play anything Latin, whether it was Brazilian or, yeah. you know, or Colombian or, you know, Cuban, oh my gosh. I mean, oh, yeah. it was otherworldly. And there was something inside this guy's groove that I was like, okay, uh, you've got to grow up there. <laughs> Yeah, it's in the water and it's yeah. you just if you're, you're marinating it, in it for your whole life it's like i mean i it, you, I, I don't know i know people who have gone in and lived in like cuba for a year to just kind of yeah emerge have immersion learning through immersion and um and I, that, that works i mean to some extent but it's not the same as like the dna growing up and drinking the water hanging with the people eating the food and doing it you know um, and that's what's awesome about how varied this world is, man. It's I love I love the fact that we're all different and I have something different to offer. It, it, and it, and it really goes to I mean it really speaks to the fact that what you listen to influences even subconsciously how you approach the songs and approach your drumming. And so there's times that before I'm go in to, to do something or I'm like, okay, what am I listening to this week? How am I going to approach this? And, you know, uh, cause different music really affects me differently, uh, on oh, yeah. how I play that week. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Am I listening it's to like too what? much news or should I listen to more music? <laughs> Boy, they also you get really aggressive in your play. <laughs> no, I mean that's boy, that's what you're feeding into your into your brain and your heart, man. That definitely makes a gigantic difference. That's you know, and that's one of the paradoxes. If, if to just be on a practical level, it's like it's the whole idea of you know, I've got my I have a basement studio, mm-hmm. and um, so upstairs. We're like, got the family and, you know, but if something happens upstairs at the family right before I'm going down here to work, um, man, it's very difficult for me to make the transition from mm. husband, father, heart freaking out over something that's going upstairs. And then all of a sudden, okay, now let's be creative, you know, and let's, yeah. it's, um, it's such a hard transition. And oftentimes I can't, <laughs> I just have to like, all right, I'm going to need a couple hours to kind of. <laughs> 
get my head about me. Right. You know? I'm kind of dealing with the same thing. It's interesting. Our our guest we had on last week, uh, a, a great English drummer, Joe Montague, who mm. does uh, a lot of you know recreating Beatle tracks and and yeah. does many other tracks aside. But that's c- kind of one of the one of the things that has. Uh, helped grow his audience and his client base, which is, yeah. which has been brilliant. Um, he lives in Leeds in England and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away. People could go to that episode if they want, but he has a separate studio space than his home. Now imagine it's different around the world, uh, you know, depending on where you live. But I asked him about that and he said, yeah, when you're, he goes, I pay rent on this place. So when I go there, even if I don't have a session that day, I have to be productive and I can be focused on what I need to do. And that has been an, an interesting challenge as a lot of us, this is if the, home, if the home studio thing is new for a lot of us, like it is for me, not for you, mm-hmm. um, it has been really interesting to kind of shift gears immediately from going upstairs or going from the place in your house to the studio space in your house and shift. Yeah, it's sort of like it's a matter of like when you're talking about what, what, what he's doing with a separate building where he's paying rent. I always come down to like, all right, do I want to be paying rent or investing in equity of where I'm at? You know, like mm-hmm. the economics come into factor. And so are the economics more valuable than the the momentary emotional problems I might have? <laughs> so, you know, it's a very it's a very real issue and something definitely to be considered. Um if I, 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 I mean, the, I, ideally, it would be awesome to have your own separate studio somewhere. I, I love that idea. Yeah. To kind of make a clean break, but <clears throat> economically, it doesn't always work out well. And you have... If I could be honest with you, the, the convenience, yes. honestly, of coming down here uh, two in the morning. Oh, gosh, I have something. I got to run down. And, you know, there's I'm having clients all the time like, man, can you send me that file again? Or can you do you have this thing? Or can right. you redo this this stereo mix or whatever? It's so easy to just jump down here and, and do it, you know. Right. Um, right. But uh, I guess that uh, also kind of shows you a little insight into how bad my boundaries are in my professional <laughs> life. <laughs> Good, chance to interview Matt Johnson, uh, one of my favorite drummers of all time, played with Jeff Buckley, uh, oh, toured wow. with St. Vincent. Uh, so did he, did he play on those records? He like played Jeff on, Buckley? yeah, played on Grace. Grace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that record, man. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it was so young, wow. so young. Yes. And um, Matt continues to be a force and just a uh, creative. Where does he live? Does he live in Lives in... Um, I would. I want to say Los Angeles, but okay. um, it is California. I'm almost yeah. positive. Um, so, one of the man talk about like just really just deep thoughts about music and drumming and how it all relates. And he brought up this thing that I thought was really amazing, and I, I find it in the world of tracking to modern the the way we produce music. 
uh, today. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's this kind of very strict uh, box, uh, whether it's to the grid or performing live to a click with uh, a lot of modern acts, uh, different things like that. Drummers in the modern era have to perform to a click. And Matt was bringing up this idea that tempo changes and increasing the speed uh, created energy in songs, uh, whether it was recording or playing live. And now we don't have that. Now you have to find other ways to uh, create energy in a track, in a live performance, when mm-hmm. you are within the confines of uh, in the studio, the grid, or live to sequencers, or a click, mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, so I was wondering, performance-wise, um, is that something you've thought about? Is that something you, you can recognize as, okay, this is the chorus, this is the second chorus out, we need something to elevate the song, and how do you yeah. approach that? Man, there's so, this is such a... Man, you could totally unwrap this in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. The, when you were just talking, I had many thoughts that I've been thinking about recently that have gone through my mind. Uh, when I play with Michael McDonald, one of his bigger songs is a song called I Keep Forgetting. Yeah. And uh, that's a Jeff Beccaro track. Oh, amazing. And I have analyzed that track so many times. And one of the amazing things about it is that it... Uh, it moves so much. It kind of moves like from 93 BPM all the way to 96, 97, then back down. It ebbs and flows depending on the court. Like he'll pull the, he'll pull those verses back. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and just, I, I don't know if it was just naturally how he played or if he actually planned it like that, but it just feels amazing. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. And it always occurred to me that we've, I've probably played that song, uh, you know, hundreds of times with Mike through the years. And, um, it, it never feels to me like the record did. And so I was literally thinking the other day, well, how, what if I went and I beat mapped Jeff's performance, <laughs> printed that click so it sounded just like that? And I'm like, wow, that's getting a little ridiculous. But, <laughs> the, <laughs> but the idea is, is that you're right. Things there's so much energy to be brought to the energy to be brought to the party through the pulling back and you know energy and uh, fast speeding up and slowing down. Um, and how now do we? how do we emulate that without speeding up and slowing down and still be on the grid? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the worship movement and church music, which I've spent a lot of time in, they, there's all different techniques and it's usually a production technique and lots of builds and eighth notes and explosive things and to emulate some sort of release in pulling back. And um, how do I emulate that life? Uh, it's interesting because I have recently, in the last couple of years, been working on a piece of software that um, I've been developing, it's not quite done yet, but um, that we can you can put stems into, but also as you're playing, slow down, speed ups things. Oh, so wow. it, and, it, and it moves with you. Okay. Uh, just because of this very issue, it's like that. This uh, recording in a studio is awesome, and it and it, but in a live situation, man, adrenaline's going people's attention spans are different it's just it's a different animal and uh to accommodate for some of those you know how many artists have you played with where you you start your first rehearsal with them and you're playing the record tempo and they're like oh no 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 we need like 10 bpm faster than that no 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 no. right 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 uh it's every artist i've ever worked with pretty much does that (laughs) unless they're playing with stems and then of course we're stuck down at the tempo that they played it with um 
at any rate, yeah, it, I mean, that's that's really one of the main problems with modern music, in, in my opinion, is the, the strict adherence to a click. And trust me, I've I grew up in the studio with the click now, and I'm I. I I enjoy there's actually some sort of a bit of safety net I feel with it, you know. Right. I'll often start with a click on most gigs just because it establishes um it establishes, all right, we know this is where the record is and this is where we probably should be. All right, let's go from there, you know. Um and I can't tell you how many times I've been in these situations where um you're like a house band and you've got like 10 different artists you're playing for and you have to you have you have a catalog that night of maybe you'll have to be playing 35 40 50 songs in one chart after another chart after another. and having some sort of a click reference to to cling to when you're not as familiar with all the music right. and you're reading a chart that you know that's the difference between death and life <laughs> 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 or being thrown under the bus you know i can't tell you how many times I we I've been in these situations where you're playing along and the and the artist goes oh man um, not knowing you like that's it's slow can you go a little faster it's not what the temp the record tempo is and I said well actually it is what the record tempo is but yeah. I could totally bump it up if you want to Look, how how fast do you want it you know yeah but at least you can talk intelligently about it if you know where you're supposed to be um but yeah I don't know if there's a a, a true answer for creating um, energy. If you're playing to a, a to a grid live and w- with the because you know as soon as you start pushing tempos and there's loops going on, boy, that sounds like a train wreck. Right, you know? right. I, I and and I'm also wondering in the studio too, like when you're tracking, somebody wants energy. But I I, I, th- I think what Matt was referencing is maybe just creating a, uh, oftentimes syncopation can change the dynamic of the feel. And it's like, it, oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Subdivisions and accentuations. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I know it's like it's one of these catch 22 things, because oftentimes artists that you're working with are in in love or, or married to I don't want to say in love, but married to what the record is. And so if you start variating too much from it, mm-hmm. eh, some, some artists are pretty cool with it. But a lot of artists are like, wait a second, man, that's not, uh, I'm not used to that. It makes me feel funny, you know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, you know, you have to be judicious with changing the arrangement or adding um, stuff like that. But Sure, sure. I do want to ask you about Michael here soon. I, I've got one more mm-hmm. question for you, uh, kind of in the same same vein. Uh, a, a, a good friend of mine, a great educator uh, here in town in Nashville, I remember years ago talking to him about, um, he was doing a bunch of sessions uh, at the time, and he, he was like, you know, it's going. I said, dude, that's great. He says, yeah, it's going well. He goes, but I'm, I'm sick of hearing myself. <laughs> I, I, I'm tired. I'm, I feel like I'm, I've got I've got five drum fills. I've got you know, and and no one seems to notice, but mm-hmm. uh, and it seems to work. But I don't know why that's that stuck with me because, um, mm-hmm. you know, where do you draw the line between going with a, a, this tried and true thing that you know works for this 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 tempo, this feel, this this type of song, you know, stylistically or or you know, when do you take those chances? But but you might have referenced this before when you're talking about the safety net of the studio. Yeah, and honestly, that it really goes back to that for me. Um, I, every guy who's doing tracks feels that way uh, mm. about like, oh my gosh, I'm getting so bored. So often what I do is I'm constantly on YouTube watching other drummers and like I literally take a pen and pencil 
and write down things. Oh, that is awesome. I'll grab that. I'll grab that from this dude and I'll try to implement it into whatever I'm doing because I hadn't, I've never done that before. That could be awesome, you know? Oh, that's And so great. oftentimes when I'm taking the extra time on these tracks, it's not because I, there was a tempo error or some, you know, I, I sped up. Or, no, it's more about trying five different fill options in this transition because let's, let's what works the best maybe simple is the best maybe that maybe a little bit of flair also while you're doing this you have to be weighing it against the producer and the artist what you know there's a threshold there as well but yeah. um i often will be doing that you know and interesting um i have another kit set up in my studio right now with, with double pedals and i've been just going through these double pedal books and trying to I, I I don't know if I'll ever use it in, for real, but it makes me think differently. Yeah. And when I'm done doing those exercises, like I go to play a, a session, I'm like, I'm my left foot definitely acts different now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just is opening your mind to the possibilities, and because uh, I know what you mean, like the same five fills. Yeah. You, we can so easily get into the rut of just dropping the Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, you know, bucket of fish, bucket of fish. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it works. People recognize it and it's uh, – but I don't know. Does it make you creatively happy at the end of the day? I don't know. I kind of look at it like this. I Every song that I track something on, I don't have to reinvent the wheel, but I try at least add one element that I've never done before into that song to make it unique to that song yeah you know yeah so i i know i can walk away and say you know what i i did something new there that that's that's a little different twist on something i've never done before so i feel good about that and if it obviously has to work it's not like you know pull out a, a clown <laughs> horn in the middle of the bridge and honk honk hey there's something new i don't mean that but you know i dare you dan i dare you, <laughs> well, you know dude i used to Oh man, it's more confessions. When my 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 uh, cartridge kit, I used to have uh, all these little gags, right? And I had this little somebody, some artist gave me a little squeaky alligator toy. I don't know why, but they thought it was funny. And so there was a time for about gosh ten years. This is a while ago because I I think somebody took it and burned it. Uh, <laughs> but that squeaker toy. You could hear on the the fade outs of about a dozen songs on the radio. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was horrible. Man, yeah. a buddy of mine I used you know. to work with a lot before he got a separate studio space. We were tracking a lot in his basement, and he had this small dog that would bark all the time. We'd be doing these oh. quiet songs. And That's it awesome. would be a great take, and the, the the artist would be like, "I'm cool with it," but if you listen really close, you could hear like this. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome, man! You know, they, they were like yeah. little Easter eggs. They just yes, <laughs> they just loved it. Uh, man, that's absolutely so, that's so fun. Uh, yeah. If I could, uh, I want to ask you about uh, working with Michael McDonald. Um, mm -hmm. Jeff Picaro's biography uh, recently came out, and that was amazing. I don't know if you've had a chance to, to see Not that. Yeah. No, I need to, I need uh, to check uh, it out. Robin Flans is the author of that. Oh, we, yeah. We had as a guest on here. You know, she was a huge uh, contributor to Modern Drummer in the early days and all through the Right, 80s. I remember, yeah. Yeah. She's got a great book on Jeff. And in the back, it's a gold mine, uh, this discography of tracks that Jeff's played on throughout wow. the years. Now, I'm sure you could go to a Spotify playlist, but this is the quintessential list. And right. um, there's a couple um, 
not only are you reading the book and reading a story about uh, in this being in the studio with Michael, uh, but you want to put the book down and and find that track mm-hmm. and listen to it, and it's like this companion, and um, it was so fun. And, and so many of these songs we know, we've known for years, we've been listening to them, but as you dig a little bit deeper and like really know what the story was behind the session, it's it's very exciting, and I imagine it's got to be exciting for you maybe even when you first started to know all the amazing musicians that went into producing this music oh man yeah absolutely um well how do i comment on that <laughs> i mean it's just i mean if you listen through his gosh through the years and i'm kind of to be perfectly honest with you i'm partial to um his very first record he came out with in the early eighties with his first solo record, uh-huh. if that's what it takes, uh, the one that has keep forgetting on it and, um, love lies with, uh, with, with, uh, Steve Gadd, that Steve Gadd track is, it's just fire. <laughs> like, mm. Uh, interestingly though, uh, I think Mike, I mean, he likes that record, but it's not definitely not his favorite. So I'm always trying to get him to do stuff on the record. He doesn't want to do anything on the record. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my gosh, the the legacy and the people that he's he's worked with everybody. Yeah, you know, and he's such a humble dude. He doesn't talk about it uh, unless you unless you bring it up. But um, I mean, just honestly though, Mike is a force of nature on uh, on par with any musician I've ever worked with in terms of uh, his keyboard playing is inspired. It's like he. He himself kind of pioneered a whole style of pop gospel piano playing that uh, most every keyboard player I know has been influenced on some level and has integrated some of those those licks and those runs. You know, it's uh, that's kind of hard to deny his influence. Uh, so you couple that with that voice, which is un you know obviously it's unbelievable voice right, what right. he has, and then you couple that again with him being such a genuinely nice dude um i mean i have it doesn't surprise me at all what the success that he has had i mean i don't know i've met anybody has, has ever said man that, that mike mcdonald he's a big jerk you know yeah <laughs> like, no one's yeah. things that have never been said at least to my ears like dude is just uh generous uh and um humble and just an absolute joy to work with but you're right the um the legacy and the people he has played with through the years um being a drummer obviously i've, I've always kind of follow the the drum thing and Picaro, my gosh you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. his tracks and that first record to me is like quintessential uh, <laughs> drumming on that that's so. so amazing how did the gig come about well you know it goes back to session days um years ago uh I worked on a couple projects with him. One, uh, there's this album called Obsession Blues that he did with Tommy uh, Sims producing. And um, he had moved, Michael had moved to Nashville for a period of time. Um, and uh, that was the first time I was on a session. I, I showed up and uh, started working with Michael on a, on a record. And that, that I love that record. There's a lot of great songs on it. And then a couple years later, I worked on a, a Christmas record with him, with a different producer. And uh, so... We, you know, established a friendship back then. And um, so fast forward years and years later, I was doing a uh, an event in the house, the Yamaha house band um, 
at uh, at NAM. It was like their 125th anniversary and Again, one of those house band things where you play for, I don't know, a dozen artists. They all do like three songs. And so you're like, but he was one of the artists. And he's always been a big Yamaha guy yeah, uh, playing the keyboards for years. And so he came out and um, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, kind of reunited. And next thing I know, I, um, his management calls and asks if I wanted to to go out and uh, on the road. And um, I normally just have always said no to stuff like that just because I'm not. I just don't like traveling, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Michael, his music, the organization, the band he put together, mm. and him, and the music, you know, it's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to try this. And it, what I thought was just going to be a, a year commitment has ended up being, you know, seven years. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed uh, the people he, surround himself, he surrounds himself with. And uh, he himself is just kind of a joy to to work with, you know, so that's, that's, that's so good to hear, man. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and production wise, I mean, mm-hmm. how strict is it on stage with, uh, well, that's another thing I really like about Michael. He doesn't like, he is all open for experimentation. Yeah. <laughs> it's just as long as, you know, completely just blow the song up. I mean, there's been times where he kind of looks over and like, Oh, right. Uh, yeah. You might want to pull, you want to dial that back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, for the most part, uh, it's, it's super, it's super open and flexible. And we, we try different arrangements on stuff all the time and often inspired by him. Hey guys, let's, you know, let's try doing this. this way. Let's, what if we do, you know, that's another thing about the, that camp. I never understood when I first got there is that everybody kind of mentions something that he would say but with his voice i don't understand why they did, they did that you know <laughs> hey dan uh, michael said that he needs to go down the stage right now I'm like wait a second why, why are you using his voice to tell me what he said i don't get it but that was just kind of everybody was doing that um but yeah he he's way open to new arrangements and you know i think about it after you've played songs for 20 30 years <laughs> Right. You long for different expressions of those songs at yeah. some point, you know. And and you were uh, talking about having his voice up in your mix to kind of feel tempo shifts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So Well, and his piano playing too, yeah, for right, sure. Right, right, he, right, right. He's so rhythm- rhythmical and um and so assertive in how he plays. And if you don't hear him well, honestly, if if I could just hear his vocal and his piano, if nothing else comes through, I'll, I'll be fine. Wow. Um, of course, it's nice to be able to hear everybody and, you know, the bass player and whatnot. Um, but uh, he's such a, a force to be reckoned with. Um, you know, and sometimes he'll take songs that we've played a thousand times. All of a sudden, you know, all right, there goes the uh, the bridge is gone. I guess we're into the last, <laughs> you know, things will happen. And, yeah. and if you're not listening, you know, train wreck city, you know. Sure, sure. It's just so, a heads up situation. <laughs> Yeah, for yeah. sure. And are you using a click for a reference? Or are you using Michael as? It just a reference? depends. Mm-hmm. When when we used to when I first started with them, I'd use a click just because of unfamiliar with, with the entire set list, and then it would shut it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, as years went by, I was like, man, it would be really really cool to interject some some of this percussion and loops that he has in some of his music to to give it more distinguishing that that being that song congas and so there's a lot of the doobie brothers stuff that has some great conga yeah. stuff and percussion yeah. that kind of defined the the groove and feel of those songs and so i started like how am i going to because he doesn't want to play with a click and he doesn't even want to know there's a click going 
Um, so how do we integrate stuff that's a consistent tempo with somebody? So I began this journey, which eventually uh, ended up me developing this new piece of software that we're not done yet because of COVID. But uh, so I would I would get a I would get some loops and just uh, maybe on one song interject a loop, and I'm like everyone's going, oh that kind of feels nice. I like that, you know. Um, and so. I, I got together with a, a friend of mine, uh, Russell Dunlop in uh, Houston, and he helped me develop uh, an Ableton uh, rig that with a third party software for MIDI translation where I could um, create these loops. So I'd get, a, I'd get the click going mm-hmm. and play with that. And then if a chorus comes up that I want like a tambourine and kunga loop, I could hit this one pad of a bar before I want it to start and it would start. As the chorus starts, you know, yeah, and then I could sh- I can shut it off, and so just interjecting little extra production value, uh, it, whatever wherever I needed it, right, you know, right, and eventually that kind of grew into this new software and um, stems and. Uh, you know, everybody. When I, people saw I was able to do that freely while I was playing, they're like, "Well, well, what if we added like a, a horn section?" We're like, oh, well, let's try it. So we recorded some horns to complement what our, our our sax player was doing, and um, did that kind of stuff and some BGV stuff just to kind of thicken things out. Everybody's still playing, everybody's still singing. Uh-huh. It's just the problem with modern music in modern production is like when people go to concerts, they want to hear the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they yeah. want the they want the fullness in the, you know, that experience. And oftentimes it's impossible to reproduce with, you know, six guys on stage. It's just impossible. Yeah. You know, because they've stacked, you know, 15 vocals. Uh or there's a there's a string section and there's a there's a horn section. It's like it's just so you're kind of at a little bit of a quandary sometimes if you want to bring the full production value of, of music to the stage, but um, at any rate, so yeah, that's kind. Of, that, does that answer your question? It, well, yeah, it sure does. I mean, it sounds like it's there's an evolution of, of yeah. what's happening on on stage, and of course, uh, amazing musicians. You know, everyone mm-hmm. on stage, but but even with that, you know, there's the audience expectation, and and it sounds oh, yeah. like you've you're in a camp where there's some breathing room to be creative. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and he's and he's continuing to do that even through COVID. Um, most he's been doing these like kind of pay per view concerts. He's done a, a two of them so far, and we um, I created some percussion tracks here at the studio, and I sent them to him, and uh, he created some B, of himself singing BGVs, and so he'll play keyboards along with my percussion tracks and his BGVs in a one man band kind of thing live. Mm. And I, I saw it the other day, and I'm like, "Wow, man!" Uh, still, here I am. I've played with him so long. I've known him, for, and I'm still like blown away with his musicianship. He takes new arrangements, different approaches to things, and he doesn't stop practicing. It's like I know he's in there woodshedding and continuing to grow at 69 years of age. So it's it's pretty amazing. That's that's good stuff to hear. I mean, even. Even just the fact that you mentioned, you know, you, you like to, you've got this new double bass book and you like to go down and, and work mm-hmm. on stuff. And I'm, I'm guessing when you have the time, are, are you practicing other things or just kind of? Yeah. Know? I mean, you know, gen- I like to say, yes, I spend an hour and a half every day with new material. <laughs> That's not true. I um, mean, you know, sometimes when you're in a session, you're, I'm playing solid from like 10 to nine at night. Yeah. And so you're like, well. 
I, there was a time where I would bring some books in and in between takes or I would sit there and kind of run through some stuff. Wow. But okay. now what I find myself doing is for inspiration and to get away from what that guy was talking about. I forget who mentioned it, but like the, the whole feelings, like are they the only five feels I know. Yeah. It's so easy to get and feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just that's what's so amazing about the Internet now. And I understand it. The Internet gets a bad rap for most of the drum videos you see are just chops, Insta chops. And I get it. I get it. But it's a cornucopia, a a buffet, if you will, of like, okay, I can I can take that out of that setting and apply it. Wow. What an amazing idea that is. Or how about the way he tunes his drums? Well, that's a different idea. Let me try that. Or there's so much available creativity uh, out there. And so I just constantly am going and and borrowing stuff from other people. Like, you know, they probably borrowed it from somebody else. Yeah. No, that's um, inspiring. That's that's definitely inspiring. I don't know how many times I'll I'll be working on something. I'll come upstairs and my mother-in-law will be hanging out and she'll be like, don't you have it yet? I mean, you've been playing forever. Like, (laughs) why are you still practicing? (laughs) That's so awesome. And now, you know, it's like there was a time, my wife and I have been together for so long, she probably could, if she paid attention, you know, she'd probably be like, well, I just remembered like this crazy drum stuff like 20 years ago. Now it's just boom, da, boom, da, just trying, you know. Yeah, like, absolutely. That's that's where you make your money right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, right. And and it's like, cause I can't tell you, man, uh, how many times I'll work on something with a Tower of Power song or oh, yeah. some Steve Ferroni thing. And then I'll, I'll get a, a track from a client and it's just boom, 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 boom. And I'll listen back to it and I'm like, why doesn't that sound amazing? That is the simplest thing. Why doesn't yeah. that sound as good as this crazy thing that I was working on yesterday when I was practicing? Right. Yeah. And there's something in the cracks. There's that's that space that, the, that eludes Oh, me. for sure. If you can, you know, uh, that's what I say to a lot of guys is like, if you can find the joy in really getting inside the and making that feel and finding satisfaction and making that feel an, an awesome, making an awesome experience. Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a good life for you <laughs> because if that constantly depresses you because it's not as complicated or thrilling as, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know what your clientele is, but my clientele, maybe one out of you know twenty five songs may be on the level of a tower, a tower power thing or a, uh-huh. that kind of fun the drummer esque drummer oriented uh-huh. type thing. Most of them is more song based, more right. And if you listen to, I mean, I was just going down Spotify, the top twenty in Spotify, and it's like the vast majority of stuff from from at least from a drum perspective. First of all, it's not real drums. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, if it is real, it's simple, and it's it just enhances what the song is. It, it, there, there's no like, look at me, <laughs> Jamaica. <laughs> you know. Surely goodness and mercy. Follow me, follow me all my days. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Yeah, follow me all of the days of my life. Were there some early lessons that were helpful to you and are still an important part of your playing? A lot of the key moments I, I can refer back to have, don't have a lot to do with drumming. It has to do with more relational 
and t- grasping hold of opportunities. You know, mm-hmm. um, I my uh, I recommend when people are starting off, and I mean this is kind of a no brainer. Duh, of course you would take every opportunity offered you, even if it's not paying, even if it's not glamorous, if it's not necessarily what you want to be doing um, in the moment. Uh, there's always something to be gleaned from that. Mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at when I when I've pushed myself in the past to do something I wasn't necessarily crazy over or could foresee a, a huge benefit coming to myself. How many times? I don't know if it's providential, but something amazing happens. You a relationship is forged because of that that situation that. You know, pays dividends later on. Not yeah. that you're looking for relationships to pay dividends. I hate, I hate that, but, uh, but it does. Like I remember, uh, I had just graduated. I went to Belmont and had just graduated, and I've told this story many times. But this is a real key moment um, where um, my roommate was playing for an event, and um, he couldn't do it at last minute. He says, "Man, would you fill in for this thing?" And I'm like, "Ah, oh, sure." You know, it didn't. I don't think it really paid anything, but I knew, I knew the artist and. Um, it was a student thing mm-hmm. at Belmont. And so I filled in and um, because of that, I forged a relationship with a bass player who ultimately recommended me to some really, really kind of career forwarding uh, relationships. Wow. Um, beca- because of that one. And I, didn't, I wasn't even playing with him on this guy. He was in another band and just saw me play. Mm. And we kind of struck up a relationship. And to this day, we're friends. But uh, he was... He said my name to Tommy Sims and recommended I got a couple of Tommy Sims. He's mentioned my name to Charlie Peacock and Charlie called me. You know, it's, there's certain things like that where if I would have said, oh, man, you know, I don't know. It doesn't pay anything. So <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like you're just selling yourself short. So I think it's super important. Even as established, I still do stuff now where it's like, you know what? This is not financially feasible. I have rent to pay, I have a mortgage, whatever it is. Uh, but I just feel like relationally it's going to be a good thing for me just to even just to get out and make music, you know. And uh, it's it, I'm surprised how often things, you know, fate, I don't know what it is, but it turns into some amazing opportunity. Not that I go into these things. Usually I'm dreading these situations, what, whether it's a, a gig that I'm not comfortable playing or with some people I don't necessarily want to be hanging with, whatever it is, there's always, always a bright side to it. And I'm always so satisfied that I, that I did it. Um, uh, as far as mechanics of drumming, uh, my parents were very instrumental, no pun intended, uh, in kind of um, guiding me early on. They were both really fantastic musicians. And um, I, uh, my dad would also be give me pointers but i remember specifically there's there's moments where um like after like a jazz concert at school school jazz concert they would uh you know i'm thinking i did great you know it's amazing you know (laughs) (laughs) and i'm packing my drums up and they're like okay so let's get home and unpack those and go set them up because uh your dad's going to show you how to play that correctly that was embarrassing (laughs) 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 like all right wow so yeah so we'd go home and uh you know He'd show me how it was correctly supposed to be played, you know. But, you know, it, it seems harsh, but um, I don't know. I think in hindsight, some of those, I mean, without the, you know, after a few months of counseling, I was able to speak again. But but, the, <laughs> <laughs> but some people think that is super harsh. And, and, and there's a harshness about it. I don't know if it's political 
politically correct to do stuff like that now, but it definitely helped me think beyond myself and yeah. uh, to think in terms of like, all right, what is what I'm contributing here? Is that helping the bass player? Is this helping the vocal? Is this helping? Am I meshing with, am I forming a, re- a musical relationship when I'm doing this with other people on stage or am I just kind of doing what I like to do? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, boy, that was a hard look. Le- it took me years to kind of configure that one out. You know, uh, a lot of people get up on stage and they, it's like they're auditioning for their next gig. And I, you know, I guess I could work for some people. It never worked for me. <laughs> I find it more uh, successful uh, to to be rehired when you try to play the song, be a team player, try to compliment whatever I can do to make that artist come across as awesome and a genius as I can. <laughs> That's what I'm going to try to do, you know. Um, yeah. And, and it's a unique position that drummers have. It's like, you're mm-hmm. not up there, you are up there performing, but your role is, is, is so unique. I mean, I know all the other musicians are there to, to whatever the focus is, say, for example, it's the singer, it's the artist, um, right. you know, to, to, to make them, but man, as a drummer, you're like the foundation to, Make sure the bass player is feeling good so he can do his yeah. job and then cueing the singers when they're supposed to come in. And oh gosh, there's just so much, so much that you're carrying that as a, I imagine as a young person that maybe that's where your parents saw. It's like, okay, that's great. I know you think you played great, but if you want to do this for real, you need to keep in mind this and this and this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely at a younger age, it kind of instilled the idea of, you know, creating your, your drum patterns around the rhythm of the vocal and what incorporating what the bass player is doing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and so immediately just those two things completely takes the focus off of what you're doing and trying to, all right, how do I make the vocal and the bass player mesh together with what I'm doing mm-hmm. or, how, or if there's some other key element, there's a real dominant guitar rhythm thing. How do I integrate that with what I'm doing and, and make, and, and, but paying, you know, uh, heed to what the bass guy with the horns or whatever it is, you know, being a, uh, a uniter instead of a soloist. You yeah. know, on stage. Do you think, yeah. do you think your experience playing jazz uh, kind of helps with that as we learn to comp and play around soloists and interact. Uh, maybe in a in a different sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of have a love hate thing with with jazz. I mean, I really I grew up with jazz. And I played a lot of jazz growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I I'll be the first to admit there's some jazz that gets so far out that it's beyond me. Mm-hmm. And I get like like what and what are you doing? You know, it seems so self uh ingratiating or whatever, self indulgent, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um but uh but the idea of reacting to what another person is sure, doing on sure. stage live at the moment that they're doing it, yeah. I think it's that's awesome because yeah. it it makes it's like all right, I got my headlights on, I'm listening with both ears. And it also it, you know, you know, with jazz it's awesome. You have to really have your technique down to make it work right. So oh gosh, if you're yes. lacking in technique, you cannot translate what's going on on stage to what you're doing. So yeah, I didn't mean jazz, man. Right. Gosh. What's oh, uh, Derek Smalls from Spinal Tap? Why are they playing so <laughs> soft? Why, what are they afraid of? You know, turn it up. <laughs> He's, he wrote this. Right. <laughs> jazz Derek, Odyssey. Uh, um, you, uh, you know, you talk about just... Uh, 
your your parents and kind of how they handled it. It's really interesting, especially now, you know, ra- raising a young musician and as a, as a professional, you know, how do I how do I inspire and yet direct when it's without without crushing this beautiful thing that is his relationship with music. Um, right. I wonder if that's ever a, <laughs> if you find that a, as a challenge, but I, I I pick my moments where he wants to share something with me, and I. I really mm-hmm. just want to take it all in and enjoy the moment and say, this is wonderful. I could not have wished for anything more. So just if you have something to say, maybe find a better time. He's he's proud of the work that he's, he's proud of where he's come uh, up, up to this yeah, point. Yeah, that, that balance of parenting and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wanting them to prepare them for the real world, but also want it not to be discouraging. Yeah, yeah that's, there's yeah. a fine line to walk there. My my son's the same way. It's like there's times where, and I don't know if this is a, a kind of a commonplace thing now where you see people on, particularly on the internet, posting videos and they come across the acting like they're an expert on it, and but you know they really don't know that much about the subject they're talking about just by the way they're talking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yet they present themselves, and I think that's like a, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you have to do that now <laughs> in the modern world, but it's unfortunate because it, it kind of thing robs you of the development of true skills, you know? Yeah. Well, and as, as a side note, I, there isn't a lot of social media that I've found from you. And is that intentional? I mean, because I think if you had things, I know I would be watching it. <laughs> ah, well, that's, that's kind. Um, one, one thing is, uh, just the timing thing. Yeah, I, I should I should really spend more time maybe developing some stuff. But um, yeah, and the, the other thing I have, you know, I just it's a really huge transition that has happened in the last eight to ten years with the idea of, um, and I don't want to say my generation. It's it's a hard it's a hard transition for me because I was raised with don't toot your own horn don't mm-hmm. I, I hate I hate bringing and I you know I should get counseling for this but I I hate to, it's hard for me to take compliments and it's hard for me to uh and when you when you do that oftentimes I perceive things that I'm watching on as like a kind of a look at me um, moment you know and. Uh, it kind of, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I, I understand yeah. this is the new economy and this is what you got to do. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time watching people do it again. I, I do enjoy it. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the, the conflict is, but, but you're right. I, I don't have a ton out there. Um, just some stuff that I've done through like Yamaha and Vic Firth and stuff, but, uh, I probably need to. That's, that's a great which idea. is so, great, by the way. Uh, it was oh, it twenty thirteen? Sorry, I don't don't mean to compliment you, Dan. Uh, ah! Make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel so weird now. <laughs> that's so well, funny. I, yeah. I remember seeing those years ago. Uh, was it like twenty thirteen? You did some stuff for Vic Firth. There was a handful of yeah. videos. It's it's brilliant. Yeah. I, I went back and watched them this last week. That was fun to revisit that stuff and how. Just still, gosh, that was a while ago, but it's still super relevant. Oh my gosh! Well, there's so there's so much stuff out there now, and, and there's more day by day by day. But there's so many great websites just dedicated to drum stuff, and I've just heard so much. It's like, well, what else is there to say? You know, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of material out there. I mean, there's probably mil- a million years of video just on drum instruction, and you know, um, so oftentimes I feel like, well, what is it that I would offer that it be you know a different take or a different twist on what is already out there but 
Dan, I'm going to let you go, man. Have a right. great rest of your weekend. And, you too, um, man. I'll be Take care of yourself. You too. And uh, hopefully we'll see you uh, around real soon. Beautiful. Thank you, man. Okay. Have a good one. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Dan Needham. I, I, I so appreciate uh, his perspective on the Nashville scene and working from home. And he is he's a force. I mean, if you hear these tracks or, or, or follow his discography, you'll, you'll just hear the tones and the pocket that he brings to the table. Just uh, an amazing drummer and, and an amazing person. So again, one of those uh, people that I've known forever, but haven't had a chance to really hang out with or meet in person. And I'm hoping to rectify that here in 2021 as things start to open up. But we, we thank Dan so much for his time and energy to this podcast. Tune in next week. Zach Albetta is back and he will be hosting the podcast next week. I don't know who his guest is, but make sure you check that out for a brand new episode with Zach Albetta as the host. As you know, we've been working with the company Sinitis USA. and We've got one more installment of our conversation with Anthony Gramani. We're going to talk about the sound treatment that they did to my studio space. We've got some recordings that we did here before and after. We're going to A-B them. I don't know if you can tell by the sound of my voice how great it sounds in the studio space, but the sound treatment that they did uh, is pretty amazing. It looks incredible. It sounds incredible. But we're going to have more information on that, so hopefully this will be just a little teaser of what we've got coming up, and I hope you'll be on the lookout for some of those video and audio examples of what Sonitis can do. But for now, thanks so much for listening. Everyone stay safe, stay positive, get your shot. I got my first one today, hooray, and uh, hope to see you around. Bye-bye.